and mm-hmm. the caption read, the end of an era. Because if old Jock Semple was going to welcome Catherine Switzer into the Boston Marathon, it mm-hmm. meant that times had changed. And indeed, that was, that was the beginning of a really huge uh, sea change in not only women's sports but and women's running, but also in, in, in the women's civil rights movement. It was a very, very important moment. Um, to, to just finish on old Jock Semple, believe it or not, he and I became best of friends. Really? You know, I'm, yeah, well, I'm like the Catholic Church. If you finally get the religion, I'll forgive you anything. And, <laughs> <laughs> hey there, guys. So this particular episode story begins in 1967 when women were just not competing in sports at all, especially in marathons. Catherine Switzer changed all of that in 1967 and set lips moving all around the world. And in the process has single-handedly changed the face of sports forever. Just some of Catherine's incredible accolades include the winner of the New York City Marathon in a time of 3 hours and 7 minutes, the female runner of the decade by Runner's World magazine, an Emmy, a movie entitled Free to Run. And she has also been inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame by creating a social revolution by empowering women around the world through running. This is an incredible story, guys. So strap yourselves in for a banger. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Catherine, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Oh, I'm delighted to be here all the way from New Zealand, for heaven's sakes. I know, right? It's amazing what we can do now. (laughs) I know. You know, it really is phenomenal. And I mean, with this whole COVID-19 lockdown, I have learned, I'm I'm a real technophobe. So I mean, to have learned a lot of these new tricks is just amazing. I know, right? And uh, what is also amazing is your incredible story. Uh, which we're going to get into. I mean, you fundamentally changed uh, the idea of women's sports uh, all around the world. Um, and um, before we get into the meat and the potatoes, I just want to set up some fundamentals. So we are broadcasting this live all over the interwebs. If you'd like to engage with Catherine directly, uh, just comment wherever you are or join our studio line. Mav, please post up the studio line number um, on the streams. And then, yeah, let's try and have a bit of fun today. So uh, Catherine, uh, for those of our audience around the world that potentially doesn't know your story, um, but sees women running in marathons all around the world, um, what's the headline? Like, put your story on a billboard. Who are you about? What do we need to know? I would say um, I'm best known to be the first woman to officially register and run the Boston Marathon and was attacked by a race director in the race um, to, who was furious because I was a girl. And I went ahead and finished the race and it changed women's running history. It was really the spark of the social revolution and a sports revolution. So it has been absolutely amazing and led to getting the women's marathon and the Olympic games and, and completely changing my life and millions of women's lives. How does it make you feel when you think about that day? When I think about that day, when I think about that day, it was a terrible day. Um, it was, I mean, it was a day that changed my life and became one of the best things that ever happened to me, but it was a terrible day because it was, um, I was there because I knew I could finish the, the marathon distance. It was a reward from my coach. 
who didn't believe a woman could do the distance. I did it in practice. In fact, we ran so hard, he passed out at the end of our training run. Um, we disproved so many myths of women's limitation. And, and yet I was attacked in the race simply because I was a girl and I was very young. I was just 20. And it was a very terrifying experience and humiliating and embarrassing. And, and media was shouting at me and telling me I should go home and that I didn't belong there. And when, when was I going to quit? Um, and I grew up very quickly. I, I, I thought that uh, often, I often say that I started the Boston Marathon as a girl and I finished as a grown-up woman. Um, and, and when I look back on it, I, I look back at that time and I say, you know, there was a 20-year-old girl and she had the guts to stand up to this and finish the race. And I'm so glad I did that because that changed everything. I think running does that, though. You know, I think that running gives you a transformational experience that empowers you for the rest of your life. Yeah. I was going to say, um, what was the context at the time? I mean, why was women not allowed to enter? Why was it so uh, such a stigma? Or could you describe some of the stigmas at the time as it related to women's sports in around 1967? Oh, sure. Um, and, they, and they had been around and still are around. Uh, they've been around for thousands of years. And in many countries, they, they still prevail. And it's the, the common myth that if a woman does anything arduous, she's going to turn into a man or her uterus is going to fall out or she's going to get big legs and grow hair on her chest and all kinds of uh, really objectionable things that it's not appropriate for women to sweat and strain. And, and uh, that that's not the typical feminine creature. Um, and that if you go outside of that that stereotype, then you you know you're kind of um, a, you know a social misfit. But but actually, you know, I was really popular. I had a lot of friends, guys who were runners, who were very very supportive of me. I had started running when I was 12 years old, and I didn't believe those myths, but because running made me feel so good. But um, and I, but I had to live them down, and I did live them down. I I, I finished. 42.2 kilometers, 26 miles, 385 yards. Um, mm. And I went on to, to become a good athlete. And, and it changed a lot of notions about what women can and are supposed to do. But yeah, those myths still prevail in many countries and are, are, are holding women back tremendously in terms of their ability to access not only freedoms, but health um, and a sense of empowerment um, and changing their lives in many positive ways. So um, I'm very, very happy for the, the work we've done and continue to do with women's running. Yeah. Um, so let's paint the scene a bit more for our audience. In 1967, the Boston Marathon, no woman has ever competed at the time. I mean, you couldn't even enter, right, from my understanding. It wasn't a well, case well, that... Let me, yeah, let me, here's, here's actually the story, is that actually a woman had run the race the year before I did by jumping oh, out of the bushes and running. And a lot of people didn't believe she did that. Um, even my coach said it was fake news. And um, I was convinced that I could see, I couldn't run fast. I couldn't keep up with the guys on the cross country team at my university, but I could outrun them in distance. And um, so, so I, I really wanted to run the Boston marathon and he and I argued my coaching. He didn't believe a woman could do it, as I said. And, and when I, and when I outran him in practice, he was utterly convinced we ran 50 K's and I knew I could do it. Um, but but uh, when I went to enter the race, because my coach insisted I enter it, I said it might be against the rules because no other woman has done this. And we checked the rule book. There was nothing nothing in the rule book, and there was nothing uh, on the entry form about gender. So there, it was it was actually a custom. It wasn't a written rule. 
But nevertheless, when I ran, um, I was not only, uh, after the official attacked me, he went and had me not only disqualified from the race, but suspended, expelled from the Amateur Athletic Union, which was the governing body of sport at the time, because I had run with men that I had run without a chaperone, that I had fraudulently entered the race because I signed my name with my initials, and because um, I had run a distance of more than a mile and a half, and I should be aware that I was severely endangering myself. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. We've come a, we've come a huge way in just 50 years, really. So um, you entered the race using your initials to get around the, the Catherine No, not part. to get it. Not, not to get around the Catherine part. Was it my, not? My dad, no, no, my dad misspelled my name on my birth certificate. Oh. So it was always misspelled. And at the age of 12, I had also decided I was going to be a journalist and a writer. And I was admiring J.D. Salinger, E.E. E. Cummings, and T.S. Eliot. So that killed two birds with one stone. It satisfied my writerly instinct in wanting to be cool. But it also um, kept my name from always being corrected into a misspelling. And um, so I signed my name that way. I, I, you know what? I'm glad I did it, but I didn't do it to defraud them. Okay. So you, you entered the race. Um, and how far into the race was it until you were noticed? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. It was about, I don't know if you do kilometers or miles. It was about a mile no, and a yeah. half. So, so okay. roughly, roughly about three Ks into the race. All right. So it was actually quite early on. And, um, Very. and, how, and was it a, a kind of a race bus or something like that with the director on it and he saw you running? Is that loosely correct? This is what happened is the press truck and the officials trucks all started behind the race. It was a pretty badly organized event, but um, the press truck then would push its way through up to the start. And that gave the photographers on the back of the truck the opportunity to shoot backwards into, you know, okay. having the race develop in front. And then they would go up to the front of the race and lead the race. And alongside was a, the, a bus that had the officials, uh, the race timers and directors, and the scribes, the journalists who were, who were writing and typing. So um, the... The incident happened when I was running. The, the press truck came in front of me with the cameras, and they began taking pictures and going kind of crazy because there was a girl in the race wearing a, a bib number. And, and then the guys on the bus, apparently the officials, were teasing the co-race director, who's a feisty Scotsman by the name of Jock Semple. And they kept teasing him and saying, oh, there's a girl in your race, and I wonder what her 
parents call her Kurt Carey or Kim, you know, <laughs> teasing him about it being a girl. And he just lost his temper. And you, you have to be sympathetic with him because he's a frustrated race director. It was a snowy, miserable day. They're trying to get the race off on time. And, um, and here he was all frustrated. And he thought I was a clown. And he was, he was a, a man in many ways who, he had a short fuse, first of all. But the second thing is, is he, in many ways, saved the Boston Marathon over many years. He was the guy who really loved this event and, and kept it alive. Um, and, uh, but he just lost it, you know, and he jumped off this bus and went after me and grabbed me and threw me back and tried to rip my bib numbers off. Here, I have them here, actually. Um, 261. See, they are. Is that the original the number? No, it's a okay. copy, but it's, okay. <laughs> it looks just, it looks just like one. It should be framed. <laughs> well, it's, they're going to the Smithsonian, so <laughs> which, which is even cooler. But, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this one was on my back, and, and you can see where he, he caught the corner and ripped it. Yeah. And, but he screamed. He was cursing at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those bibs. And he was trying to get my numbers off, and my coach was – trying to get him away from me. And he was screaming, leave her alone. She's okay. I've trained her, leave her alone. Mm. And he smacked my coach out of the way. Um, but my boyfriend, who, who really was only running in the race because if a, if a girl could do it, he could do it. He was a um, ex-All-American football player and a contender for the Olympic hammer throw. <laughs> but he decided he was going to be in Boston. And, and he just hit the official with an incredible flying shoulder charge and sent him out of the race. And, um, and my coach then screamed, run like hell, and down the street we went. I mean, we were all kind of terrified by the whole thing. It really was an ugly incident. Um, I was crying, naturally. I was so scared. Um, but I was absolutely determined to finish. And I, I just turned to my coach, you know, in the midst of all this, and I said, I am finishing this race on my hands and my knees if I have to. Because if I don't finish the race, nobody is going to believe I belong here, that women deserve this opportunity, and that women can do it. It was an era uh, of the beginning of the women's liberation movement, the second great movement of li women's liberation, where people were always criticizing women and for, for going into what they considered male domains. Mm -hmm. And then they say, women are always barging into places where they're not welcome, and they can't do it anyway. And I knew that they would say that if I walked off the course. Um, but I was so humiliated, I, I, felt, I felt like I really wanted to stop for a while. I mean, I was just so embarrassed because the, the press were shouting at me, you know, what are you trying to prove? When are you going to quit? Uh, it, it, it was a tough thing. But, you know, the marathon makes you very resilient. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it does. I've got it up on the screen here, the, uh, the picture of you basically turning over your left shoulder and um, this chap, uh, what's his name? Josh Pello. Um, no, Jock, Jock, Jock Semple. Jock Semple. Jock Semple basically having a go at you. It's, it's pretty frightening, right? And I can see the look on the faces of all the other runners going like, what the hell is going on here? I know. It happens so quickly. I mean, I, I didn't hear him until the last moment. I mean, I didn't see him at all, but I heard him first. And um, because I heard the difference... You know, a runner always hears a dog's claws on the pavement or a car or a bike coming up. And I heard leather shoes, not running shoes. And I heard them out of sequence with everybody else who was going pat, 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 pat. And I just turned and, and there's the fiercest face of any guy I ever saw right, right there screaming at me. It was really quite amazing and, and terrifying. But. 
Did you? But anyway. Yeah, I can. Yeah, no. So, so Jock Sample, did you speak to him after the race? Like, I know you finished in about four hours twenty minutes. Um, did you speak to him after the race? Did his reaction change, or was he was he still aggrieved about the whole situation? Was he embarrassed about the situation? What was your kind of relationship with him? from the moment you finished the race? Because obviously you've now achieved something that the world said wasn't possible. They hadn't seen this happen before. So you've, you've now got leverage, right? In other words, you've kind of taken the power away from the rest of the world and kind of given it to yourself. You've now got credibility. Um, did that change his perspective at all? Quite the contrary. He right. dug in, maintained he was right, um, held press conferences saying, how wrong I was. He was the one who wrote to the Athletic Federation demanding that I be expelled from the Federation on all these different rules. Today, of course, I would have had to take him to court. And several lawyers called and said, what are you going to do? You know, you have a case here, la la. And I said, look, that's, that's the worst thing I can do. I'm, you know, I'm not going to inflame the situation. I'm not going to be somebody who complains about it. I'm going to go and create change and, and make it happen. And I did. But but for a long time, in fact, he was furious at me for five years, if you want to know the truth. Hmm. And, and in that five-year period, it became a joke because he just kept getting more and more angry and, and kind of digging himself deeper and, and, and saying things like, you know, even his wife hates him and, <laughs> for what he did. Um, and it was, it was just really quite amazing. And in that five-year period, women women do what women often can do best, which is just to be persistent. And we kept showing up at, at other races and at the Boston Marathon um, and running and running really well. You know, mm. we got better and better and better. And pretty soon the women were, were down around three hours and breaking three hours. And we got our legislative stuff together. We campaigned the Athletic Federation and we got women official into the Boston Marathon in 1972. And then he had to welcome us into the race and he had steam coming out of his ears. He said, any woman's going to run my race. She's got to meet the men's qualifying standard of three hours, 30 minutes. So we all did. There were eight of us who did it and eight of us were there. And then he saw us run and he said, wow, they're really pretty good. Like he hadn't been noticing for five years. It was really amazing. You know, it's, it's funny how legislative change often forces people to look at it and say, well, gee, maybe, maybe they had a case all along. So anyway, we were official in the race. I uh, actually finished third. I had some problems in that race, but I finished third and he had to present me with a trophy and the trophy, oddly enough, was broken. It had broken in packing the statuette on the top and he had to present this check. And he said, um, oh, well, look, he said, look, I'm sorry. I the broken trophy. And, he said, I'll, I'll have it repaired if you want to send it back to me. And he said, but I've been mad at you for five years and you deserve a broken trophy. <laughs> wow. That's nice. So believe, believe it or not, that, that trophy is in a museum also. And, really? I, and I kept it broken. I kept it broken with the story because I'm saying, you know, I deserve yeah, a yeah. broken trophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then the, then the next year, and this is, this is a really good one because he never said he was sorry. But I was on the start line the next year, and I was running pretty hot by that time. And mm. he came up to me, and he grabbed me. And I thought, oh, my God, he's going to hit me again or something. And he turned me around to a whole bank of, of TV cameras and planted a big kiss on my cheek. And he said, and his Scots brogue, I can't do one, but I'll try. He said, he said come on, lass, 
let's get a wee bit of notoriety. And the, pic- <laughs> the, picture, the picture of him kissing me was in the uh, New York Times the next day. And mm-hmm. the caption read, the end of an era. Because if old Jock Semple was going to welcome Catherine Switzer into the Boston Marathon, it mm-hmm. meant that times had changed. And indeed, that was, that was the beginning of a really huge uh, sea change in not only women's sports but in women's running, but also in, in, in the women's civil rights movement. It was a very, very important moment. Um, to, to just finish on old Jock Semple, believe it or not, he and I became best of friends. Really? You know, I'm, yeah, well, I'm like the Catholic Church. If you finally get the religion, I'll forgive you anything. And, <laughs> and, and, and um, he, he and I would do speeches and interviews together, and he always maintained he was always right. And, um, and I was with him just a few hours before he died. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, it was really important. People say, wow, that's a lot of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. But, you know, here's a guy who changed my life. And it was, a, um, it was a terrible incident at the time, but it became the best thing that ever happened to me and certainly one of the best things that ever happened to women's running. He's a man that, because of that, produced one of the most galvanizing photos in the women's rights movement. Mm. And that photo has gone on to become one of 100 photos that changed the world in Time Life's um, library. And, um, and for me, it launched... The inspiration from this negative incident launched a really very positive movement of um, social justice, of, of women's equality, of creating millions of opportunities for, for women and men around the world to meet on a, on a level of mutual motivation, inclusion, diversity, respect. Mm-hmm. Um, running has done that, and women's running has created those avenues in many ways. Um, Catherine, if you just on a side note, have you watched that um, uh, series on Netflix called The Best of Enemies? I have not, but I've heard I really must. So is it, it, is it a- it's similar. It's not the same, obviously, but it's, it's also about civil rights. You're talking about women's rights specifically, but this was, mm-hmm. uh, it covers Anne Atwater, who was a, basically a black resident and activist for, um, for, for black residents and their rights. And C.P. Ellis, who was head of the um, KKK at the time. And so, so they were like brutal enemies when they first started out. And then they were forced to work together. Um, and as a result, they became also similarly, you know, they got over their own kind of drama um, and then became best of friends and actually did a lot of fantastic uh, work around civil rights um, in America at the time. Um, you should check it out. And anyone listening to us right now who wants to understand how people can like actually get over these kind of injustices and become best of friends and kind of actually make a difference. It's a really powerful story. Um, yeah, well, I mean, life is too short not to forgive. Honestly, you carry that, that negativity around. You've got to, get, you've got to let it go and, and, and transform that into something positive. Um, it's sometimes not very easy, you know, because you're really angry and hurt. But um, it's the best thing. So when you finished the race, four hours, 20 minutes, um, the, the image, the images, I should say, of, of, um, of Mr. Peller uh, basically trying to attack you, that went around the world. Um, what was the reaction, the initial reaction from the world's global media about what you had done? 
the headlines said it all. It wasn't about what I had done. It's about what my boyfriend had done. The headlines said, chivalry is not dead. Tom Miller rescues his girlfriend from the clutches of this evil race director in the Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but, but I li- um, actually, my husband loves to say, he said, but the, the passive became the active at that moment. Because after that, I took charge of the incident, finished the race, and, and went on. So the press followed this with eager, eagerness. You know, there was a lot of publicity, both negative and, and, and um, positive. Uh, over the years, they watched the progress of women's running. And it was really a wonderful moment to, instead of being um, antagonistic with a, a mean press, but to educate them. And pretty soon they became our strongest supporters. In fact, in the Boston Marathon, it was the media who also were championing the women's race because they were finding us very interesting because they were setting records and running faster than and improving faster than a lot of the men. So it was it was was a very interesting time. But yeah, it was um, at first it was about it was quite polarizing. I would say 85 percent of the press was extremely negative. Journalists said horrible things. One journalist wrote, he said, if I didn't hate women golfers so much, I'd hate women runners more. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's really crazy. Why? Why? You know, I'm actually a pretty nice, fun person. Mm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but, anyway um, but then there were, um, I would say, some, some journalists who wrote exceptionally well. Um, Bud Collins, maybe you remember him as the tennis commentator the, uh, who did all those uh, wonderful TV interviews and, and commentary. Funny guy. He, he wrote, he said, he said, I felt bad today. This is in 1967. I felt that bad today about being a man when I saw what happened on the streets of Boston. And, um, and uh, another one, which was um, uh, uh, the, you know, the author of Love Story, the, um, Oh, golly, who can, you know, he was a Greek scholar at Yale University. He wrote, he said, you know, if men have to legislate for their freedom, he said, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so there were, there were some very strong voices. Eric Siegel. Eric Siegel. Siegel. Eric Siegel. Yeah. 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 Hi there, guys. So a quick one just to say we have launched a studio line. You can now interact live with our guests either online and or using your mobile phone. The number for the studio line is plus two seven seven nine nine double four eight six three four. The number again is zero seven nine nine double four eight six three four. Add that to your phone, guys, now, and we'll be happy to take your questions live on the Map Round Show. Well, um, so when you look back at that whole time, what do you think was the was the biggest? Uh, change that you saw happen as a result of you know your because by the way you then went on and you you know won the new york marathon as well and etc 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 i think you believe you came in like even it was amazing and compared in the whole field it was like in the top 152nd overall or something crazy like that um so um what do you feel has been the number one change that your 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 actions had on the global stage was it about the perspective of women in general was it about women's rights? Was it about women in sport? Was it all of the above? Are you able to choose something? What do you feel now, if you look back at it all, actually still to this day surprises you? 
Oh, well, there are a lot of questions there. So let me just take the first two. We will come back to what surprises me. Mm -hmm. I think there are two huge things that resulted from this that, that I'm very pleased with. One uh, was the, um, it, it, the social justice. It was that, you know, women then proved that they could run and they deserved to run. Um, and, and it changed their attitudes and it changed a lot of people's attitudes for, for women in many, many things, not just running, but, but um, running was so highly visible that that was very, very important. The other thing was the physical accomplishment. What, and what has been revealed over the years and is now going to be changing the face of sport, in my, in my estimation, is the fact that women actually are better at endurance and stamina than men. And so it, it doesn't mean uh, we're better athletes or you're better athletes. We will never have the speed, power, and strength of men, but men will never have the endurance, stamina, flexibility, and balance of women. So what we simply have not had until the last 50 years is an opportunity to be an athlete and, and to show what we can do. And we've also never had the, the, the domestic freedom, the birth control, the, um, the disposable income to really uh, indulge ourselves like men have had um, to, to be athletes. So, so that is all new. And so we're, we're, we're rewriting sports. You know, I remember very distinctly, I and mean, maybe you don't because you're a lot younger than I am, but um, when Billie Jean King started women's professional tennis. And, oh, she was just pilloried. You can imagine, just like I was pilloried after the Boston Marathon. And everybody said, nobody, why should they get paid? Nobody is going to be interested in women's tennis. Well, arguably, women's tennis is as popular as men's tennis. I mean, among many segments, it's more popular. Mm. Women's soccer is just beginning to emerge. And is it the same game? No, it's not that, it's not that same speed, power, and fake diving and histrionics, by the way. Um, it's, it's good. The strategy is, is really smooth, and it's, it's a very interesting sport to watch. I actually prefer watching the women's soccer to the men's soccer. So, and, and also women are winning outright, 100-mile races, grand traverses, um, you know, um, uh, six-day events, 24-hour runs. They're winning them outright. So we're, we're beginning to see a whole new category of what women's accomplishments can be and, and capability can be. So I would say those two things mm -hmm. um, were the, the strongest emergence. What still surprises me, um, what still surprises me, I guess doesn't really surprise me, be, but, but it surprises in many ways is, um, is what disappoints me the most. And that is how many countries um, completely restrict women's freedoms and um, are, are still surrounding them, the women themselves and the men um, the, and the governments who, who don't see the value of half of the population and what they can contribute to a better society and, and how powerful and strong they can, can be. And, and therefore, the women themselves don't understand either. And they are not having the opportunity either. The, the point is, is ability and talent is everywhere. It just needs the opportunity. But actually, I'm doing something about that. And I want to talk about that if I can right now for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, so every, everybody, everybody knows this number, right? This famous number the official tried to throw off me. Well, it's actually now become a number meaning the fearless in the face of adversity. For nearly 50 years, I only thought of it as three digits. And from this feedback that we, we began getting from people, you know, show you this, um, the, we created a nonprofit, a group of my women friends and me called 261 Fearless. 
and it is a uh, educational and um, a running network of women where it's non-competitive and non-judgmental, but we give women the opportunity to take that first step. Women who are in a fearful situation, helped by somebody who is pretty fearless with a, a, a community, a club, a running club in her, her village or her town. And we show them how in an easy, accessible and cheap way, they can put one foot in front of the other, they can run and they can have the same sense of fearlessness and empowerment that many of us have gained through running. And it is, as I said at the beginning of the show, it's transformational, it changes their lives. So we're, we're hoping that, that all of you out there will join us and go to 261fearless.org and join us and start a club in South Africa. We'd love to do it down there. Really? Amazing. So what's, the, yeah. what's, what's your hope around this? Is it to have all these uh, 261, Fearless 261 clubs all around the world, running clubs around the world? Absolutely. We are already in 11 countries, five continents. Oh, but it's a very small organization at this point. Um, you know, we have four or 5,000 women. Uh, that sounds big, but it's not. And um, we, my goal is to penetrate areas where women have no opportunities. And, and believe me, you know, most of the women in the world still live in a fearful situation. So this is, as I say, easy, cheap, and accessible, and we can really change their lives. Have you been to South Africa before? I've not. I've not. I, well, I, you know what? I was there virtually just a few weeks ago. <laughs> here's, my, here's my bib from the comrades. Oh, right. Explain that to me. Explain that to me. Mav actually shared that with me. He said, I didn't understand though. Help me understand. What was it? So the Comrades Marathon. Yes. For the first time in what, a 70 year history Mm -hmm. has, um, maybe longer. I'm sorry. I should really know this off the top of my head. Um, was, was canceled, you know, post they couldn't go with it. Like all the other running events in the world. And so what they decided to do is have a virtual run and throw it open to the entire world. I think this is one of the greatest ideas I ever heard. And if you register for the race and set in your 25 bucks registration fee, you know, you got your bib and you're, you're going to get a medal, supposedly. Um, I'm sure we will. And you had your choice of not having to do this enormous distance. You could choose 5K, 10K, a half marathon, a marathon, or the, or the full comrades distance. And it's a, it's been a, a goal of mine all my life to run comrades. Yes. And I was hoping, in fact, on, on my aging calendar that finally I was going to do it in 2021. Maybe, maybe I still will be able to. Um, mm. But anyway, when there was this opportunity to run it virtually for 25 bucks, are you kidding me? I even sent a donation. <laughs> <laughs> but what's really great is it keeps the spirit alive. And then because everybody has a, a watch with GPS, I had to figure out, all this on an app, which I'm not very technologically savvy. But anyway, I did it and sent in my time um, on, a, on a measured course and for 5Ks. And, um, and you, you know, go. I think I finished like eighth in my age group. <laughs> wow, amazing. Well, look, I mean, hopefully, you know, in a year from now, we'll be in a different situation as a society. So, um, uh, I hope so. yeah, if you, or if you ever, um, you know, coming over to South Africa, let me know. Let me know. I certainly will. I've got a bunch of questions here from uh, the audience. This one's from um, Incapacile on Twitter. She says, good morning. Uh, what's your take on the gender pay gap in sports? Oh, well, my, my, the gender pay gap is very real and exists, and I'm sorry that, that women 
um, soccer players and, and other women athletes aren't getting paid the same as men. But the reality is, is that society isn't ready yet. I mean, you, we're just going to have to keep working, keep uh, playing well and educate the public to the value of, of um, women's sports. You know, women's soccer, um, hey, they want to get equal pay. I, I believe they, they're totally entitled to it, except can they fill a stadium every week? You see, that's, that's what we need is we, we, we're going to have to have the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the commitment from a lot of spectators and the fan base. Mm. And I also would like to ask the person who asked that question, when's the last time you bought a ticket? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So we think nothing of buying a season ticket to, you know, you know the, the, the big soccer club, the big football club for men. But when's the last time you bought a ticket for a women's event? Mm. So I'd like women out there really to support other women. Buy a ticket. Yeah. I'm not even sure we have a, a women's soccer league here in South Africa. I'll probably speak under correction. Never heard. If we have one, to put your... You better get one fast, big, you know, because yeah, like, you know, the big soccer clubs in, like Real Madrid and uh, et cetera, are, are they're supporting their women soccer players now because mm. they know that it's, it's a coming force. I, I thought can, women's World Cup soccer this last year was just tremendous. Well, I, it's I know, coming to New Zealand, by the way, in oh, 2023. Really? Yeah, uh, New Zealand and Australia. I know we've got a, a national female soccer team called Banyana Banyana. Um, uh, but I have never seen a local club. Like, you know, you've got the Kaiser Chiefs football men's team or Pirates, mm-hmm. like the two biggest teams in the country. I've never seen any televised women's matches to, in my memory. I've never seen that. Only the national team. And then I'm always surprised. Well, like, I'm like, where did they come from? I, just, like, I didn't know we had a national team. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, if I were the, the chairman of a big company in South Africa, I would pay for the television coverage of a women's sports because I think that that would get a lot of attraction. Mm. I think that, that it would surprise them how much, uh, how much uh, loyalty they would get for it. Yeah, I'm sure. Think about it. Super sport. That's your problem. Um, here we go. I've got some more questions here. This one's from uh, Leandra. She says, do you think we are still fighting for women's rights today? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Most of the women in the world still live in a fearful situation. Where women are not allowed to drive a car, get an education, vote, carry their own passport in plenty of countries. It's, it's, we've got a long way to go. And we've got to overcome so, so much myth. So, Yes, mm-hmm. we, have a lot of, we have a lot of work to do. A big question around women's rights in general, though, um, and I know there's no you know, simple answer around this or one-size-fits-all solution, but where does the change start? Is it through it activism or is it, is, is it in the system that, you know, that is, you know we, do we need to drive the system in order to support the level of change that we need? Or where does the rubber hit the road here? To me, the real start, the real start begins with your kids at home and raising your boys and girls equally and giving your daughters every opportunity for an education, telling her she can do anything, empowering her and giving her every every opportunity in the world. The, The reason I became a runner is when I was 12 years old, I told my dad that I wanted to be a high school cheerleader. And he said, no, you don't. He said, cheerleaders cheer for other people. You want to want people to cheer for you. He said, the game is on the field. He said, life is to participate, not to spectate. And he said, you should go out and run a mile a day and you'd make a field, the field hockey team in your high school. I said, I couldn't possibly run a mile a day. 
And he said, yes, you can. It's easy. I'll show you. And he measured the garden and we went out and I ran my seven laps. And I did that every single day that summer. And I made the team and I was really a good player. And I fell in love with running because it empowered me so much. So there is a one simple thing, you know, that because I did that run every day, I felt like I could do anything. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had a victory under my belt. Nobody could take away from me. That's the way every kid should grow up. Not just girls, but, you know, girls more than, than boys because boys somehow get it from other boys or whatever. But, you know, um, you know we, the kids have all the talent in the world. They just need that opportunity and they need that motivation. It's very simple to say, add a boy, add a girl, you can do anything. Just give them a shot. That's where it really begins. Yeah, that's an amazing answer to that question because that was a big one. Uh, it does actually start at home. Like I've got a young girl and um, she's two. So I, with, I, you know, as a parent, you think forward, you're like, well, what kind of world is she going to be, you know, when she leaves home and, you know, when she's got education or whatever that looks like in 20 years time, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, um, what world is she going to inherit? And, you know, what can I do uh, as a father with a podcast, as an example, to help raise mm-hmm. awareness of these kinds of things? And actually, by the way, to educate myself first, and then to raise awareness of, you know, the continued struggle of women around women's rights all around the world and all these different societies and, and in areas and, you know, just uh, that I'm not even aware of, you know what I mean? Like, who knows, like an Indian, for, like you know, prearranged marriages for kids, as an example, you know, yeah, exactly. I'm, not, I'm not judging that. I just don't understand it. Maybe I don't agree with it. But like to raise awareness of these of these situations, you know, and as a, as a parent, then to kind of take forward a new perspective through conversations like this. Yeah, well, you're doing a great job. We appreciate it. But I think with your with your little girl, just give her every opportunity and constantly reinforce her, and mm-hmm. say you can do this, and show her how. You know, give her, give her the tools. Yeah, uh, this one's from Nadia. She says, looking back on uh, that era, do you think today's modern day tools like social media um, would have helped women's would have helped voice women's rights and your quest to run the Boston Marathon, and do you think a lot more can be achieved using these tools today to fight for what matters? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that the communication is instantaneous, and right now, and we we need to utilize them better. What I what I despair at is. Um, well, in my own country, in the United States right now, it's a, it's a real mess. You know, people are not paying attention to this virus and they're getting into serious trouble. And I think it's because they kind of live in an unreality of, of their selfies, of their, you know, of, of their Facebook posts, and, and, and instead of really realizing that there is a world around them and that, that this is not a reality show, this is real life and people are dying and you've got to take responsibility. I think that... that we need to um, make sure, in, and increasingly this is happening, that there's really good quality stuff like this program coming out on social media. And I know I was just uh, three days ago, I did an um, a, um, Instagram Live with a, with a um, women's empowerment um, organization out of the UK. And they're trying to use that forum so young girls will take a better look at how they use social media and, and instead of having role models who are, um, you know, just these vacuous people and, and movie stars or whatever, that they're substantial women who have made change. And so they're creating a system of role models that women can, and girls can tune into. I was doing another one that was really terrific. Um, 
with an organization called Makers, and everybody could go see Makers just online. There's a, they have done oral histories of many, many women that, that otherwise would maybe be lost in space and time. Or my, my story, for instance, would just become a legend. And they have these real live oral histories, but now they're doing something because nobody, kids and girls especially, couldn't go to school we did something called Makers Homeschool, where we took real live interviews with terrific women like, you know, Madeline Albright and Gloria Steinem and me and everything. And, and we talked to these girls and they could tune in. So by their thousands in the afternoon, they were actually having a one-on-one with us. I mm. think that's terrific. It is. Um, I, I'd actually, I googled um, oral histories. Um, Just Google it? Makers, M-A-K-E-R-S. Okay. Yeah, it's beautiful. Let me have a look at that. Um, while I'm doing that, um, let's get on to some more questions here. Um, this next one is from uh, Shanti. She says, I saw a documentary with you last year called uh, Free to Run. Uh, what was yeah. the transition like from running marathons to being behind a camera telling a story? <laughs> well, um, I, I'm behind the camera a lot telling the story, but um, that Free to Run was a terrific film. And it was made by a French guy named Pierre Marath out of Switzerland. And, and it was about how running left the strictures of all these, these governing bodies and, and, and the amateurism code and went free. And we could run in road races and through the woods and just have open free running and, and professionalism was founded. And there were four protagonists in the film um, who changed the face of running. And there were, there were three guys and there was me. So that was really nice. You know, there was a guy, Fred Lebo, who created the great road race, you know, the, the major road races of, of the world when he created the New York City Marathon. And Stephen Prefontaine, who died a, in a car accident, but he opened the doors for professionalism. And, and a Swiss guy who opened the doors for kind of this free sense of spirit of, um, his name was Noel Tamini, to open it for, for running. And I open the doors for women. So I was really happy to tell that story and they did it very well. And the other thing that was really cool is that over the years I have saved um, thousands really of videotapes and, and even 16 and eight millimeter film from running events. Um, and, and I had organized with Avon Cosmetics in particular, a series of uh, women's races in 27 countries, over 400 races for a million women. And these are the events that led to getting the women's marathon into the Olympic games. Mm -hmm. And I told that story and used a lot of those. They went through my basement and dug out all this old film and, and, and had some really great archival footage. So that's one of the first films that really has taken a, a really good look at how the, the, the marathon and run, running has evolved. So free to run and you can get it on Netflix. Yeah, I've got it. I had it up on the screen while you were giving us the, the headline there. Um, I was watching um, uh, an interview with Samuel L. Jackson, and he was talking about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And in America, they've got, as they do, they, have, they call it you know, Black History Month. And then you've got Women's History Month. What do you say to the idea of the month being a device that actually still relegates the value of women's history to just four weeks of a year versus say oh, 
just women's history. Like, why does it, why is it women's history month or black history month? Why is it just be black history? Why must my history be relegated or your history be relegated to just a month? What do you say to that? Well, well, no, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm a Pollyanna. Okay. I always look at the positive and I say, Hey, listen, we, we need all the help we can get women and blacks, you know? And, and if we focus on women's history month or black history month, it focuses the teaching uh, schedule for a lot of these younger kids um, to do their school projects. So, I mean, I literally get hundreds of requests on Women's History Month from all of these students saying, I'm doing my school project on you, and may I have an interview? Well, you know, I can't do them all. I really can't. So what we've done is we created a, a thing on my website where they go in and they get their they frequently asked questions and the access to pictures and all that kind of stuff, and so they can do their projects. Um, and that's great because the more people who can study and know about women's history – um, the better. And the more people who know and study black history is really, really important um, because um, these stories are, 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 they're important for us all to know. Mm. That's, that's the bottom line. So whatever helps. I, I don't think we're relegated to one month. I think mm. being relegated to one month at least just focuses on us for a month and it gives us a little, little more breath each year. Yeah. Tell me, Catherine, uh, you mentioned before we went live that you're an ambassador now for uh, Adidas and you're still a professional athlete at the tender age of 73, which is, uh, which is amazing in and of itself. Um, what work are you doing for, uh, for Adidas as an example? Are you working communities? What does that look like? Um, at, at, um, you say Adidas, I say Adidas. Um, in America, we say Adidas. What I do for them is um, I'm, I'm kind of the wise woman voice. Um, if you look at all the pictures of me in my major breakthrough events, running Boston for the first time in 67, running my best two-hour, 51-minute marathon in Boston, winning the New York City Marathon, all of them have me in Adidas shoes. And so it, it, it makes a really, really amazing history. So what we do with Adidas is that we – um, we have talked about women's emergence a lot uh, and giving a lot of power and strength to women who are just emerging as runners, giving them a sense of empowerment and encouragement. So we, we talk about the op opportunities, how to create those opportunities. I do a lot of global speaking for them to different communities, both um, through Adidas runners or sometimes to their management, which is really great. And when I'm talking to emerging markets like the Adidas person there for South Africa, a fabulous woman, uh, met her in Istanbul, uh, really hit it off. She's fabulous. And they're doing amazing things for the women's community in sports. Um, and that's where I come in. Um, when I'm talking about emerging markets, for instance, I said there's one market for sure that's the biggest emerging market in the world, and that's women. <laughs> you know, 50, 52% of the world's population is women. And boy, I'll tell you, when they shop, they can shop. <laughs> <laughs> but also, also, you know what? Um, why do people buy sports gear? For the most part, we buy it because it makes us feel um, like uh, it empowers us. And, and so if it makes you run faster or feel like you're an athlete, that's, that's part of what it is. Plus, it's incredible you know, equipment and everything. So. But I think the story I like to tell the best is I didn't become a professional paid endorser of shoes and clothing until I was 68 years old. 
And so I, I want you to let people know that as an athlete, you know, you can be one of the greatest athletes in the world or certainly one of the most famous. And sometimes your time isn't until the time is. But finally, I became a professional athlete at age 68. That's amazing, eh? Sure. <laughs> Never give up, basically. But here's another thing, though, that's been amazing is, is that um, I would say, without a doubt, the happiest day of my life uh, was um, – April 17th, 2017, when I ran the Boston Marathon again on my 50th anniversary. And I was the first woman to run a marathon 50 years after she first did. I'm really, really grateful for my health. But um, it was a wonderful moment. Uh, uh, Adidas was there with with the story. It was one of the biggest, it was trending on Twitter. You know, we were were having millions of hits. And it, it was amazing. Just try to imagine. I mean, in 1967, I was the only woman in the race with a bib number. 50 years later, I stood on the starting line and ran with 13,500 women, 50% of the field of the Boston Marathon. And that, to me, represented so much um, of the progress and the emergence. So uh, it, it, it was a fabulous, fabulous day, and I didn't have a single blister. that's that's testimony to those shoes i'll tell you (laughs) (laughs) so uh, catherine uh, cognizance of time i'd like to wrap up um just a comment and then the final question so i just want to say uh, what an incredible legacy you've left uh for for women all around the world and um you know it's been a real privilege and an honor to have you here um the question is why do you do what you do what gets you out of bed in the morning what gets me out of bed in the morning are two things. One is an enormous sense of responsibility. I think, you know, for, ba- for better or worse, when you've been given something, and at first I was given a lot of negativity, but I felt responsible for changing that negativity. And now, to me, I feel really responsible for a lot of those women out there who really need help, guidance, and empowerment. Um, and if I can do anything in the world to help motivate them, I will. And so I would say uh, that that is also the joy. You know, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to have that kind of responsibility. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning also, is that sense of, yeah, there's a lot to do. Let's go get it. Amazing. Uh, Catherine Switzer, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Map Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, You're In A Game, for free right now today, you can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.